Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Thanks, worship team, for leading us in worship uh, this morning. Thanks, Jim, for reading our scripture today. My name is Mark Hoffman. I'm director of worship. I'm one of the elders here at Meadows Christian Fellowship. As most of you know, our church is in a time of transition. Right now, we've been without a senior pastor for about three and a half months. And while some churches may have gone out and um, immediately gotten an interim pastor, we have not uh, chosen to go that route. And there are a couple of reasons why we've done that. And one of them is that we have a preaching team. And um, there are four of us, and, and we have taken on the, the preaching uh, role in-house here. And that's been a real blessing for me personally. Um, and the other reason is that the elders have... Uh, seen this as an opportunity for us to really press into biblical eldership and to embrace our role and our responsibility here as leaders and shepherds of this church. And we recognize that it's, it's hard work, um, and we are not always going to be perfect at it. We haven't. Um, but we know that it is what we are called to. And so um, we don't have an interim pastor, but we just want to let you know that you do have leaders and you do have shepherds here. And we just reaffirm our commitment to you to lead and to love you through this time of transition. So if you have any pastoral needs at all, we just ask that you would bring those to us um, because we're here for you. We're here for you. And as Tim mentioned, we will have more to say at the business meeting next week. So we just hope that you'll join us <clears throat> and bring us a, a dessert that doesn't have nuts in it. So, um. Well, it has been a real privilege to serve alongside Mark and Drew and Stuart. Um, as part of our interim preaching team, it's been an enormous blessing to just dig in and study God's word and, and to uh, bring God's word before God's people. Um, so before we dive in, let me just, let me just pray for us. Lord, we recognize that your word is living and active and that it is transformative and that you use it in the life of your church and in the lives of your people to shape us into the image of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would do that today through the power of your word and the working of your spirit, Lord. Help us to reflect you more as we leave this place today. We know that is your will, and we trust in faith that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks again, Jim, for reading our passage. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus come as the promised king on a mission to save his people from their sins. He's gone out among the people to teach and to heal and preaching a message of repentance. Jesus has called people to follow him, and now in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him gathering his disciples to him in order to begin to teach them what it is to be part of the kingdom. And last week, Mark Barnes helped us to take our first look at the Sermon on the Mount and what the life of a follower of Christ looks like as it is displayed in the kingdom character of the Beatitudes. And now... 
As we hear Jesus continuing his Sermon on the Mount, we hear him teaching his disciples that they are salt and they are light. Illustrating these two important words to them as he continues to help them understand what it means to belong to the king and to be a part of his kingdom. So let's begin first with salt. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. When I was young, my dad, whenever he sat down to eat a meal, would put salt on everything. He wouldn't even taste his food first. He would sit down and he'd start sprinkling salt on it. Because to him, that made everything taste better. Well, this caused my mom to have some concern about my dad's health uh, because she knew that too much salt in your diet can cause high blood pressure. So she said to my dad, no more salt. I'm taking away the salt shaker from the table, so you can't do that anymore. She started cutting salt out of the recipes that she made. And that was all in an effort to keep my dad healthy. And this was good for a little while, but after some time, my dad began to experience some lightheadedness, and he would feel dizzy at times, and this persisted, so my dad made a doctor's appointment, and my mom and dad went to the doctor, and she was sitting out in the waiting room waiting for him to come out of the doctor's office, and he came walking out of the doctor's office with a huge smile on his face. And my mom asked him, well, why are you smiling? And he said, because everything's fine. And she said, well, what about the lightheadedness? And what about the dizziness? And he said, well, the doctor says, I don't have enough salt in my diet. (laughs) So his prescription is for me to go home and to eat a big bag of potato chips. (laughs) Salt is important, right? Salt is essential. Now, people in the ancient world, maybe they didn't know as much, you know, medically or scientifically about salt as we do today, but they certainly knew what salt was good for, and they knew how absolutely essential it is. I'm going to read a a description of salt. This is from a Bible dictionary, the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And as I'm reading this, it's too long, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but as I'm reading this, I want you to think about what was Jesus communicating to his disciples as he calls them the salt of the earth? Salt, a chemical compound composed primarily of sodium chloride used to preserve, purify, and season food. Salt is one of the most common substances on the earth and cannot be destroyed by fire or time. Salt was viewed in the ancient world as a divine gift, also known as white gold. It is one of the most significant substances in history. In ancient societies, it was a valuable social and economic commodity. For example, in ancient Egypt, it was a symbol of luxury, and Egyptians used it in the mummification of their dead and to preserve olives and fish. The biblical writings attest to various uses of salt and a variety of symbols associated with salt. 
In the biblical world, salt was associated with life due to its uses as a preservative, a purifying agent, and a seasoning. Many of the symbols attached to salt reflect its practical uses. For example, because salt can delay the rotting or decaying process when rubbed into meat, it is a symbol of incorruptibility. Salt was also seen as a purifying agent. Ancient peoples rubbed babies with salt at birth, Ezekiel 16, verse 4. And the prophet Elisha used salt to purify a polluted spring in 2 Kings chapter 2. Reflecting its very uses, ancient writings depict salt as one of the necessities of life. That's salt. A divine gift. Indestructible by fire or by time highly valued, a seasoning, a preservative against rotting and decay, a purifying agent necessary for life. And Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Because this earth, this inhabited world, is a place desperately in need of spiritual salt. The Apostle Paul describes the world we live in. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are like the anti-beatitudes, aren't they? Paul goes on again in Romans chapter 1. He says, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do these descriptions sound familiar? Isn't this the world we live in? The culture we live in? All we need to look around, do is look around and see the Bible gives us a spot-on accurate view, a description of reality. This is the world we live in, and into this world, Jesus comes. And into this world, Jesus sends his people who know that They're poor in spirit. People who mourn their own sin and the sin around them. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Into this world, Jesus sends people who are merciful just as they have received mercy. People who are pure in heart. People who are peacemakers. All of this even at the risk of persecution. Jesus sends his disciples as the salt of the earth. 
saying to them, I'm sending you out as my eternal, indestructible, highly valued, divine gift to a dying world. I'm sending you out to season that which is rancid, to be rubbed and pressed into and to preserve that which is decaying and to cover and to purify that which is corrupted. You are necessary for life. You are the salt of the earth. Then Jesus goes on and he says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There are a couple of ways of interpreting what Jesus is saying here. Again, I want to read a little bit from the Bible dictionary. It says more about salt. Salt is found in abundance in the area surrounding the Dead Sea, which is the saltiest body of water in the world, at over 25% salinity. Salt from this area can be mined from salt cliffs, gathered from the marshland, or harvested from evaporating salt water. However, Dead Sea salt was not of the highest quality as it was mixed with other minerals, and the outer layer could be tasteless. So in other words, if the salt wasn't processed correctly, the impurities would cause the salt to be tasteless, or at least to seem so. So one way we can understand this teaching is that Jesus is warning his disciples against the impurities of living in a sinful and corrupted world. That failing to continually live the kingdom life of repentance could cause the disciples to be tarnished by sin and would completely negate their effectiveness as the salt of the earth. In verse 13, the ESV translation reads, it is no longer good for anything. And when you look at the Greek verb being translated here, it's literally saying that the salt no longer has its competence, its power, or its ability. So it is useless. It does not fulfill its purpose. It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, to be cast aside, to be walked on, having no effect whatsoever. It's supposed to be purifying. And bringing life. But instead it's probably not even noticed by the very people that it's there to bring life to. They just walk right over it and go about their business. So the principle here is this. When disciples become ineffective, they become invisible. When disciples become ineffective, they become invisible. Invisible. We'll come back around to salt later. But next, Jesus goes on to teach another important word in verse 14. Saying to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You may remember back in chapter 4 of Matthew, we said that darkness is often used metaphorically in Scripture to describe all kinds of spiritually negative things, sin, judgment, ignorance, misery, impurity, and death. And light is used to symbolize the opposite. Forgiveness and freedom, truth, understanding, and life. And there was a prophecy fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Matthew 4.16, it said, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them, light has dawned. We learned that people dwelling in darkness are people who are just stuck. They're stuck sitting there in the dark, and their whole existence is to just sit there completely enveloped in and in bondage to the darkness of sin and judgment and ignorance and misery and impurity and death. But King Jesus comes on a mission to save his people from their sins, and he comes as the great light, the mega light, to shine the light of forgiveness and life on his people who have been just sitting still in the darkness in the shadow of death. So Jesus is now saying to his disciples, now that I've come into the world and shined my light on you, you are the light of the world. I'm sending you into this dark world to shine forth the light of my gospel. And again, it bears repeating that we see this theme over and over in the New Testament. Colossians 1 13 and 14, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.8. Oh, that was Ephesians 5.8. So Jesus is reiterating to his disciples that they are now the light of the world. They're the bearers of the light of Christ, shining forth the gospel of Jesus into the darkness. But then Jesus gives them this illustration. In verses 14 and 15, he says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Okay, Jesus is illustrating a complete absurdity here. Can you actually hide a city built on a hill? I mean, have you ever flown into Chicago at night, or any big city at night? And if it's clear, you can see lights for miles. And here... Jesus is bringing to mind the image of a city lit up at night, situated on top of a mountain, standing tall above all its surroundings. I mean, really, can you hide that? No. It's absurd. Or do people light a lamp and then place a basket over it? I don't think any of you have probably recently come home to a dark house, unlocked, fumbled through, switched on the lamp, and then put a bucket over it. It makes no sense. It's absurd, and that's the point. Jesus says, no, people don't do that. They light their lamp and place it on a lampstand. They put the light up so people can see. They put the light out in the open so that it will shine forth. And that's exactly what this verb means. When Jesus says it gives light to all in the house, it means that it gleams. 
It shines out. It shines forth to all who are in the house. So it's hard to miss the point, really. Jesus is teaching both sides of the same coin. As he teaches his disciples about the salt, he's saying when disciples become ineffective, they become invisible. And here, as he teaches about light, he's saying when my disciples become invisible, they become ineffective. They're not accomplishing anything. Taken together, this is a clear teaching from Jesus to his disciples. And it's a clear teaching to us, actually, as his disciples. What a warning against lazy faith, spiritual apathy, the lie of hidden discipleship. Settling for comfort over calling from our king. We must hear Jesus' warning. When disciples become ineffective, they become invisible. And when disciples become invisible, they become ineffective. But then Jesus goes on to give this instruction to his disciples in verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is sending his disciples out to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt and light. And as his disciples today, here in this place, we hear the same teaching from Jesus to us, the same call to go out into the world as salt and light, two important words. But we haven't yet talked about the two most important words in this passage. The two most important words that Jesus gives emphasis to here for his disciples. Understanding salt and light is critical. But the two most important words of this passage that Jesus is emphasizing is you are. You are. As we're listening to Jesus teach today, he's teaching us and he is telling us who we are. Mark Barnes hit on this last week in the Beatitudes. This is about our identity. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, to call his disciples to follow him. He gathered his disciples to himself in the Beatitudes. And he's telling them and telling us what kingdom character looks like. And it's not transactional, it's not if you act like this, then you'll be blessed. But you are blessed because this is who you are. This is your new identity. Now go live it out. And here he continues. You are salt and you are light. This is your new identity. Now go live it out. This is who you are. Let's go back to verse 13 for just a second. Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, the Greek verb there, which is translated as lost its taste, when it's used in reference to salt, 
is always translated as lost its taste or become tasteless. But when used in reference to people, which is actually the primary use of this verb, it's translated as become foolish. So the point here is, sure, maybe salt with impurities has a tasteless outer layer, but underneath that layer, guess what it still is? It's still salt. It's still salt. And it's foolish to pretend that it's anything else but salt. But somehow it's lost sight of what it really is underneath. And the thing about salt, pure salt, is that it's salty. Always. I mean, whoever heard of unsalty salt? Right? Like, go to Jewel and ask what aisle they have the unsalty salt in. I don't think you'll find it. And what do you do with unsalty salt? Do you salt it? Do you put salt on it? Do you soak it in salt water? I mean, it makes no sense, right? It is absurd. It is literally absurd. The point here is there's no such thing. Salt cannot be anything other than what it is. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot be anyone other than who he says we are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes this. Jesus calls them the salt of the earth. Salt, the most indispensable necessity of life. The disciples, that is to say, are the highest good, the supreme value which the earth possesses. For without them, it cannot live. They are the salt that sustains the earth. For their sake, the world exists. Yes, for the sake of these, the poor, ignoble, and weak, whom the world rejects. In casting out the disciples, the earth is destroying its very life. And yet, wonder of wonders, it is for the sake of the outcast that the earth is allowed to continue. The disciples, then, must not only think of heaven, they have an earthly task as well. Now that they are bound exclusively to Jesus, they are told to look at the earth whose salt they are. It is to be noted that Jesus calls not himself, but his disciples the salt of the earth, for he entrusts his work on earth to them. You are the salt. Jesus does not say, you must be the salt. It is not for the disciples to decide whether they will be the salt of the earth, for they are so, whether they like it or not. They have been made salt by the call they have received. The call of Christ makes those who respond to it the salt of the earth in their total existence. If you have received and responded to the call of King Jesus, this is who you are, whether you like it or not. You're the salt of the earth in your total existence. You're bound exclusively to Jesus. You belong to him. He has saved you. He has bestowed his kingdom character upon you. And he has entrusted his mission to you. We are his church. 
And to us, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the eternal, indestructible, highly valued, divine gift to a dying world. You are sent out to season that which is rancid, to be rubbed into and to preserve that which is decaying and to cover and to purify that which is corrupted. You are necessary for life. You are the salt of the earth. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. This is your identity. This is who you are. And it's totally absurd to think that you can be hidden. You are the light. Light shines forth. That's what it does. Verse 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Again, we need to look at the Greek to fully appreciate what's being said. This is the only imperative verb that Jesus speaks here. It's a command. Jesus is literally saying, gleam, shine out, guys. Shine forth. Shine forth your light in front of people, in the presence of people, because this is who you are. And looking back again at Jesus' illustrations of light, notice the applications. In verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No doubt this imagery brought to mind Jerusalem, to the minds of disciples, the city of David, the center of worship and chosen dwelling place of the Lord. It's a city, so many people living together, with the presence of God and the worship of the Lord being at the heart of the community, well, that's a picture of the church. And when the church is shining forth, it cannot be hidden. The whole world sees us. It's very public and it's very corporate. Jesus says, you all are light of the world together. And in his other illustration, in verse 15, Jesus says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So Jesus says, yes, I want you to shine forth together as my disciples, to shine forth publicly as the church, and I also want you to shine forth privately as individuals. You are to be the light of the world in your homes in your family. Shine forth in your marriage. Shine forth as a parent. Shine forth as a son or a daughter. Shine forth in your friendships. Shine forth the light of Christ because he has told you who you are. You are the light of the world. And why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You notice it's really not about us. It's about God. 
We're the blessed ones, yes. The light of Christ has shone on us and in us and through us, but he gets the glory. Pastor and evangelist G. Campbell Morgan writes that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We understand when we are yielded to him, subjects of his kingdom, obeying him, then we too become the light of the world. The quality of light is not that it desires to be looked at. Light enables other things to be seen by its shining. The sun is in heaven not to be looked at, but the sunshine enables us to see other things clearly. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men may glorify your Father. Father, The light of the Christian shining in the world illuminates all the worldly order so that men may see the true way. And again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. Men are not to see the disciples, but their good works, says Jesus. And these works are none other than those which the Lord Jesus himself has created in them by calling them to be the light of the world under the shadow of his cross. If the good works were a galaxy of human virtues, we should then have to glorify the disciples and not God. But there's nothing for us to glorify in the disciple who bears the cross or in the community whose light so shines because it stands visibly on the hill. Only the Father, which is in heaven, can be praised for the good works. It is by seeing the cross and the community beneath it that men come to believe in God. Being the light of the world isn't about shining light on ourselves. It's just about being ourselves. Living out our Christian identity is shining the light of Christ in the world. And that light illuminates so that people who are stuck just sitting in the darkness of this world, this fallen world, may even for the first time in their lives be able to see. They can see something good And look up and ask, where did that come from? And then look up further and recognize that it's from God. We are the light of the world shining forth the light of the gospel everywhere we go. And we don't hide or cover that light. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You are the light of the world. So as we walk out of this place this week, here's what I'd like us to take with us. First, we must listen to Christ's warning. When disciples become ineffective, they become invisible. And when disciples become invisible, they become ineffective. We must listen to Christ's warning and we must live out Christ's calling. You are the salt of the earth. 
You are the light of the world. Will you be salt and light at work this week? Students, will you be salt and light at school this week? In all of these places, it's tempting to join in just to fit in. But I want you to remember who you are. Remember, we are the meek. We're the pure in heart. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. Remember who Jesus tells you you are. And live it out. Will you be salt and light in your home this week? In your family? We were all once stuck sitting in the darkness too. But Christ came and shined the light of his love and his grace and his forgiveness into our lives. Praise the Lord. And now he says, I've given my light to you. You are the light of the world. Shine forth my light in your home, in your marriage, to your kids. Remember, we are the merciful. We are the peacemakers. Don't hold back your light. Don't cover it up. Jesus didn't hold back any light from us. He calls us to shine forth. Remember who Jesus tells you you are and live it out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ has made us new and he's telling us who we are. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. This week, remember who you are in Christ. And live it out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have shown your light into our lives. That you have drawn us to yourself and you have created us anew. And we thank you that you tell us who we are. You don't just leave us alone to figure it out. But you continually speak to us and tell us who we are. Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts willing to live out who you have recreated us to be. 
Lord, it's our desire to know and to love and to become like Jesus Christ. And we recognize we are most like Christ when we are living out who we are in Christ. Lord, by your grace and by the working of your spirit, we pray that you would shape us into the image of Jesus. As individuals and as a church, so that the light of Christ would shine forth from us. And we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.